Good news on the job front. U.S. employers added more than 250,000 jobs in April. The unemployment rate dipped to 3.4 percent. That matches the lowest level in more than a half century. Job gains despite economic worries coming up on this Friday, May 5th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the Boston-based doctor who's been at the helm of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, is stepping down. Are U.S. Supreme Court justices subject to the same accountability as the other two branches of government? Some of them say, nope. And when the Notre Dame uh, Cathedral caught fire four years ago, its great spire collapsed, so it's going to be replaced soon with an exact replica. If we don't rebuild it as it was, we would break down the unity, architectural unity, of the monument. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Title 42, the pandemic-era public health restriction U.S. officials utilize to slow migration at the southern border, expires next week. Today, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas spent time at a migrant processing site in Arizona where Agents are expecting to see the number of migrant crossings increase significantly. He accuses human smugglers of using lies to lure migrants to make the dangerous journey to the U.S. The border is not open. It has not been open and it will not be open subsequent to May 11th. Officials are expecting tens of thousands of people to attempt to enter the U.S. A bipartisan group of senators is proposing a bill that would replace Title 42 to buy the Biden administration more time to roll out a plan. President Biden's top cyber advisor says the White House is still debating how to curb ransomware payments. NPR's John McLaughlin reports one major question is whether banning payments in most cases would do more harm than good. The ransomware task force is a group of government, industry and academic experts focused on a very costly and worldwide problem, stopping cyber criminals from extorting victims. The group is reconvening after forming two years ago. Speaking at the event, Deputy National Security Advisor Ann Neuberger said the White House has accomplished a lot, including seizing stolen Bitcoin. However, she said there are remaining questions, including how to measure success long term. Neuberger also said the U.S. government is still debating whether or not to ban ransomware payments while giving waivers in emergencies. It could make ransomware less profitable, but also put undue pressure on victims who need to quickly restore their networks. Jen McLaughlin, NPR News. The U.S. Supreme Court is blocking Oklahoma from executing death row inmate Richard Glossop in less than two weeks. Anna France of member station KGOU has an update. Richard Glossop filed an application for a stay of execution after the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board split vote at his clemency hearing last month, which resulted in no recommendation for clemency. Glossop was given the death penalty after being convicted of the 1997 murder for hire of his boss, Barry Van Treese. But recent investigations have found evidence that calls Glossop's guilt into question. Glossop has received support from Oklahoma lawmakers and officials, including Attorney General Gettner Drummond. The Supreme Court's order stays the execution pending existing petitions from Glossop. For NPR News, I'm Hannah France in Oklahoma City. More New Yorkers are calling for legal action against a young Marine veteran accused of killing a homeless black man on a New York City subway Monday. So far, no charges have been filed. Your city controller, Brad Lander. New York City is not Gotham. You can't take the law into your own hands and choke someone to death who's having a mental health crisis. Manhattan prosecutors have vowed a rigorous investigation. This is NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Centers for Disease Control Director Rochelle Walensky is stepping down. The infectious disease doctor from Mass General Hospital led the CDC throughout most of the coronavirus pandemic. President Biden today credited Walensky with making the CDC a stronger institution, better positioned to confront health threats. Walensky faced questions over her decisions on masks and testing from public health experts. She'll remain on the job through June. New report firefighters continue to remove potentially hazardous materials from a pharmaceutical plant following yesterday's lethal explosion. New report acting Deputy Fire Chief Barry Salt says the explosion happened while chemicals were being processed. He says the air quality around the plant is safe. The only danger to the public was the, the event itself. The air quality was a concern initially, but it it was faded fast. The wind was blowing strong. It took all the current away with it. One worker was killed in that blast. He's been identified as 62-year-old Jack O'Keefe of Methuen. The Environmental Protection Agency says it took prior enforcement actions in 2006 and 2019 against the company, which is known as Sequence PCI Synthesis. Advocates for displaced Haitians in the region are meeting with the state to secure more support for the migrants. They're fleeing the human rights crisis in their country. Jeff Thielman is the International Institute of New England's head. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston the group is providing emergency services to many of those arriving from Haiti. We need a more coordinated effort to respond to people that are arriving. We need a coordinated system. The shelter system is very complicated. It's overwhelmed right now. We also need uh, to pull all the groups together under the direction of leadership at the state level to figure out a solution Hundreds of families from Haiti without shelter have been forced to stay overnight in hospital lobbies. Massachusetts is home to the third largest concentration of Haitians who live outside the country. 56 degrees now in the Boston area. Sunshine was worth waiting for. A beautiful afternoon, a few fair weather clouds around tonight, back down to the mid-40s. And for the weekend, we should have even more sunny days. Tomorrow should reach about 70. Sunday, the same thing. Light winds throughout the weekend. Again, 56 degrees now in Boston at 4.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, VentureX. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. We got surprisingly good news today about the U.S. job market. Despite rising interest rates and turmoil in the banking system, U.S. employers kept on hiring last month. The economy added more than a quarter million jobs in April, and the unemployment rate matched its lowest level in 54 years. NPR Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Sasha. Scott, with all the challenges the economy is facing right now, a lot of forecasters had expected to see to see slower job growth in April. What happened? Yeah, all those headwinds are still out there, but employers just sailed right through them. Uh, we saw lots of hiring last month in healthcare and hospitality. Even construction and manufacturing, which are particularly sensitive to rising interest rates, managed to add jobs in April. Uh, as you mentioned, the unemployment rate fell to just 3.4 percent, tied the tied with the lowest level since 1969. And the unemployment rate for African Americans fell to 4.7 percent. That's a record low since the government started tracking it back in 1972. Uh, President Biden celebrated all these good numbers at the White House today. The really good news is working-age Americans are participating in the labor force at the highest rate in 15 years, not just since the pandemic, in 15 years. 
Biden's talking there about people in their so-called prime working years, between 25 and 54. Uh, They've been coming off the sidelines and joining the job market in large numbers. In fact, people in that age group are now more likely to be working or looking work than at any time since 2008. Unfortunately, though, people over 54 and under 25 are not showing that same level of interest, and that's a big reason that the overall job market remains very tight. And when job markets are tight, that often means wages go up because companies are competing for workers. Is that the case here? Very much so. Average hourly wages in April were up 4.4 percent from a year ago. That's a bigger annual increase than the month before. For a while there, it looked as if wage gains might be cooling off, but not anymore. Uh, and of course, workers like getting those bigger paychecks. But Sarah House, who's with uh, a senior economist at Wells Fargo, says it's not helping the Federal Reserve in its effort to bring down inflation. It's great for workers that they're still getting some nice pay gains, but if it's just all going to higher prices, workers don't come out ahead in this situation. Of course, the Fed raised interest rates again this week in its effort to bring prices under control. Uh, Inflation has eased from its peak last summer, but it's still running well above the Fed's target of 2%. And in order to get back to something like stable prices, we're probably going to have to see somewhat slower wage growth. So April's numbers for jobs were better than expected. Any forecasts yet on what to expect in months ahead? Yeah, it's hard to know with precision. Obviously, these these monthly numbers can bounce around a lot. In fact, the Labor Department made some pretty big downward adjustments today to the February and March jobs numbers based on more complete information. If you step back from the noisy month-to-month variation and just focus on the overall trend, you do see job growth gradually slowing down. And House says that's about what you'd expect. Hiring can't defy gravity forever, so we're looking for a continued slowdown in in job growth. Hopefully it will continue to decelerate at a pretty measured pace rather than a big, swift collapse. A gentle, measured slowdown is the soft landing the Federal Reserve hopes to achieve, but there are a couple big wild cards. One is the uncertainty in the banking system. Uh, Other banks are, are expected to cut back on loans after those three bank failures, and that could make it hard for business to grow. And then there's the uncertainty over the debt ceiling. If that ends badly, we could be looking at a big, swift collapse. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. In just a few minutes, we'll hear about all the seaweed washing up on beaches in Florida and the Caribbean, and a little bit about how bad it smells. But first, a national trend. State lawmakers are debating bills that would take control away from city and local leaders in favor of state control. Analysts say it's happening across the country, but Republican legislatures and governors in particular are increasingly using the practice to exert control in culture war debates like policing, education, and and LGBTQ rights. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell has this report. This week, a fight in the legislature in Missouri boiled over as the state Senate considered a bill to transfer control of the St. Louis Police Department to a state-appointed board. None of the legislators who are pushing for this uh, live in the city proper. That's St. Louis Mayor Tashara Jones. Voters decided a decade ago to end a Civil War-era law that granted the state control over the city's police department. Republican State Senator Tony Lukemeyer argued on the Senate floor this week that the state should have that control back because crime is rampant in the city. Recently, we've seen major St. Louis area businesses leave or threaten to leave the region because of crime. But Jones says this legislation was about politics. This isn't about public safety. It's about power and control. It's about power and control of our democratically led cities by outstate Republicans. 
This bill didn't succeed, but it's just one example of many bills known as preemption laws, and they are getting more and more popular. Last month, Mississippi's Republican Governor Tate Reeves signed a law giving state-appointed leaders control of the police department in Jackson, the state's largest city. In Florida, lawmakers are taking aim at school districts, rent control, energy laws, and many other local laws. And according to Mark Treskin of the Urban Institute, that's intentional. States have been increasingly active actors in looking for local laws that might not fit into the ideological underpinnings of who's at the state level. Clarence Anthony, the CEO and executive director of the National League of Cities, says there are more than 600 of these preemption bills circulating in state legislatures right now. What we're seeing lately is, I think, an increase of uh, home rule grab type legislation. And we're seeing more preemptive laws being uh, implemented throughout America. Cities and local governments have traditionally been in control of issues like schools, public safety, and housing. Their jobs have been to address the unique needs of the people in their area. Then COVID happened. Mike Ricci advised Larry Hogan, the former Republican governor of Maryland. Ricci says during the initial outbreak, governors were suddenly using their power to manage the health emergency. You know, a light bulb goes off. And you know, if we can do this with local health powers, can we do it in other areas, whether it's law enforcement or housing or energy policy? And so it just takes on a life of its own. But these powers aren't new. Governors and state legislatures from both parties often work together to pass uniform laws for the entire state. Advocates for the approach say it's a way to avoid a patchwork of rules by setting statewide standards, like for rideshare companies or the minimum wage. But as culture wars sprung up across the country, Ricci says governors and state legislatures tapped into those same powers for political reasons. He says it would have once been unthinkable for a Republican governor who believes in small government to meddle in local issues. But now we see it all the time. And I think that will continue. I truly believe that preemption and these uh, these tools will be the new normal. Clarence Anthony of the League of Cities says many of these bills will fail, like in Missouri. Many more will change. But the uptick in state governments trying to restrict the rights and actions of cities is significant. One size does not fit all. And our local leaders, really, they were elected to lead their community uh, and to make those decisions. For Mayor Jones in St. Louis, she'll still have control of the police department for now. But she says there are serious consequences to undermining local leaders. It makes voters angry, especially when they elect their leaders on the local level and then they see that their leaders constantly have to fight uh, for the rights of our cities. It is particularly stark when those voters have nobody to represent them statewide. Advocates worry that voters who lose faith in the power of their local leaders may stop participating in elections altogether. Kelsey Snell, NPR News, Washington. Record levels of a smelly brown algae called sargassum are starting to wash up on shores in Florida, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Too much sargassum can cause headaches for local residents and wreck tourism economies. So it makes sense to remove it. But that creates another challenge. What can you do with a massive pile of seaweed? NPR's Emily Olson has this story. It's pretty common to smell sargassum before you even see it. Residents have for years complained about the smell because when it washes ashore, it, it smells like sulfuric acid or something. It smells like rotten eggs, says Allison Crane. She's a spokesperson for the city of Key West in Florida. 
The longest stretch of public beach in Key West is only about a half mile long, so it's not hard to rake stinky piles of sargassum off the sand every morning. But it costs the city about a million dollars each year, she says. And that's a cost that could rise. Our Tourist Development Council is freaking out. Research shows that excessive sargassum levels may cause nausea and respiratory issues. And now scientists think it could contain some heavy metals like arsenic. That makes leaving it all on the beach dangerous to local ecosystems. But taking it off the beach leaves you with giant piles of stinking seaweed. So researchers and private companies have tried turning it into fertilizer, biofuel, or plastic. But it's not so easy. Because it's poisonous, you have to process it to make it usable mm. for most things. And that can be too expensive for any large-scale use. I mean, there is, there's millions and millions of tons of it. That's Patty Estridge, CEO of Generation Seaweed. It's a UK startup that thinks it may have finally found a commercially viable solution. We are building an automated robot called the Algorae, which is designed to intercept and sink sargasm before it can reach the coast. This slow-moving robot could drag sargassum down to depths of about 200 meters. That pops the air pods that keep sargassum afloat, sending the seaweed to a watery grave. And more importantly, it traps all the carbon that it holds, which could be a scalable way to fight climate change. It's a bit like an ocean Roomba to try and clear up the seaweed blob. The algorithm is still in testing phases, but Estridge hopes it might be ready to work by next summer. Emily Olson, NPR News. Four years ago, a fire devastated Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. The building's historic 19th century spire was among the ruins. Later this hour, we'll hear from the craftsmen working on rebuilding that spire and how they're restoring it to its former glory. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, an update on Wall Street. The Dow rose 1.65 percent, S&P gained 1.85 percent, the Nasdaq picked up two and a quarter percent. Wages are rising in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, but not as much as they had been. The Bureau of Labor Statistics reports that wages and salaries for workers in Boston, Worcester, and the Providence areas jumped 4 percent in the last year. That's down from the 6 percent increase the year before. Across the country, wages and salaries rose just over 5 percent last year. It's 418. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University. Advance your studies with more than 700 courses in over 70 subjects, ranging from business, math, and sciences to humanities, languages, communication, and more. For summer term dates and to register, visit bu.edu summer. Listen to Violation, a new podcast from WBUR in partnership with The Marshall Project, a story about two families and an unthinkable crime that's bound them together for decades. You can hear Violation wherever you get your podcasts. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. And the Umbrella Arts Center, with the musical adaptation of Alice Walker's Pulitzer-winning classic, The Color Purple. May 12th to June 4th, theumbrellaarts.org. 
Lots of sunshine over the next couple of hours. Then a partly cloudy night tonight, lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be sunny once again. A lot milder temperatures could make it close to 70 tomorrow. And then the same thing for Sunday. Sunny, breezy, and mild, up around 70 once again. In the Boston area, now 56 degrees under sunny skies. The time is 420. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. In Argentina, the economy is heading toward recession and voters are ready to throw out the incumbent government. Anger is high. That's given a self-described ultra-libertarian, a political opening never seen there before. Many Latin American countries have turned to the left, but Argentina may shift to the extreme right in upcoming presidential elections. NPR's Kerry Kahn reports. Javier Millet defies labels. The 52-year-old economist with his mane of messy hair, bushy sideburns, and leather jackets is not a typical Argentine politician. He wants no part of either the traditional left or right. Nosotros no queremos ser esclavos de los políticos. Nosotros queremos ser los arquitectos de nuestro futuro. We do not want to be slaves to the politicians. We want to be the architects of our own futures, he screams to a crowd of mostly men in the northern city of Córdoba last year. He calls himself an anarcho-capitalist, someone who believes that individual liberty rules over any role of the state which he calls a criminal enterprise that must be dismantled. I'm not here to lead lambs, he says. I'm here to awaken the lions and raise up Argentina. His rage easily taps into the desperation and fury Argentines feel after decades of dealing with inflation, corruption, and crippling debt. About an hour outside Buenos Aires in the upscale city of Pilar, a man paints Millet the only solution on the side of a building. Campaign worker Mateus Stradjilovic says Millet is a straight shooter with great appeal to young voters. He says no one wants to hear politicians who talk for an hour and say nothing. Millet gets right to his plan which includes replacing the peso with the dollar, eliminating the central bank, and privatizing state companies. Followers may not get or agree with all his radical policies, but they love his attacks on Argentina's politicians, who he calls serial liars and members of a corrupt caste, says pollster Facundo Nechamskis. He's the only one saying we have to change this whole thing, says Nechamkis. 
Polls have him capturing as much as a quarter of potential votes. The current leftist president says he won't run for re-election, and the right have yet to rally around one candidate. Center-right hopeful Patricia Bullrich with the conservative Together for Change coalition mingles with business owners during a campaign stop outside Buenos Aires. The former security minister says she'll bring order to the country not just to combat rising crime, but also to the economy. She too is now pushing for a total change, but has yet to provide details. Millet wants to change everything, culturally too. He's called for a ban on abortion and an end to what he calls cultural Marxism with this signature cry. I won't ask anyone for forgiveness just because, as he says, I'm blonde, blue-eyed, and have a penis. As for foreign policy, he doesn't say much but preys on both neighboring Brazil's former far-right leader and Donald Trump. Malay declined repeated requests for an interview. No, no, for Miriam Pereda and a friend sitting outside a clothing store in Pilar, it's too early to pay attention to politics. Pereda says for her, it's just more of the same, blah, 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 with little to help her pay her rising bills. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Pilar, Argentina. New a new comedy series starring Saturday Night Live alum Pete Davidson dropped yesterday. The show, which is streaming on Peacock, is based on Davidson's life. NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says Bubkiss is a sometimes boneheaded show that nevertheless reveals an awful lot about its subject. Another title for Pete Davidson's new comedy could have been Adventures in Knuckleheadedness. Consider this moment when Davidson loses a key movie role for acting like, well, a knucklehead. Chris O'Donnell plays his manager. They are pulling the offer on the Fast and the Furious. What? Why? Because you were photographed doing whippets at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. You're 29. Who does whippets outside of high school? I'll be good, okay? I'll get the movie. I'm glad to hear that you are open to making the right decision, but I'm a bit concerned because you're doing nitrous right now. Or here, where backstage at a charity event, Davidson tries to convince Jon Stewart to run for president. We gotta talk, man. I think I think it's time. I think you gotta throw your hat in the ring. It's time to run for president. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's gonna happen. Come on, Stu. Man, you gotta run. I mean, if you don't, John, I'm gonna have to. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you should do that. How old do you have to be? See, that's right there. You afraid I won't win or something? Yeah, that's not what I'm afraid of. Awkward moments like this are the backbone for a lot of the comedy in Bubkiss, which features Davidson stumbling through situations like a grown-up comedy star with the attention span and drug habits of an at-risk teenager. But a funny thing happens on the way to jokes about hiring a sex worker for his dying grandfather. We get a close-up look at Davidson's tortured life as a celebrity. In one sequence, a gossip site falsely reports his death, sending his mother, played by Edie Falco, into a panic attack. And the public's misunderstanding of his life leads to anger and self-destructive behavior, as Davidson explains to his therapist, played by Charlie Day. People online are just like, oh, pizza cokehead, because I move my jaw when I get nervous. And I wasn't even on coke, you know? That's why I get so upset. If I was on coke, I'd be like, wow, good job, you, you good eye, you know? But I wasn't on coke, you know what I'm saying? Right, but Peter, are you on coke? Like, if you came up to me, you'd be like, yo, did you, do you do coke? I'd be like, no. But like, if someone was like, you want to do a bump? I'd be like, yeah. 
This fictionalized Pete Davidson lives in the basement of his mother's house in Staten Island, just like the real comic did. And he also struggles with thoughts of suicide while the death of his father, a first responder during 9-11, still looms over the family. But the show's real casting coup is getting Joe Pesci to play Davidson's grandfather, a no-nonsense Italian guy dying of cancer who delivers some tough love when Davidson complains about his public image. I gotta change it up, you know? I gotta change the way people see me. People think I'm like a joke for some reason. They see you as a joke because you are a joke. And you act like a joke. You run around like a kid and you're not a kid anymore. You're a man. Yeah, but I'm doing good career-wise. I mean... You know, a Hypebeast called me a voice of a generation. I don't think that was a compliment. There's a boatload of other great cameos here, from Brad Garrett and Bobby Cannavale playing Davidson's relatives to turns by Ray Romano and J.J. Abrams and Steve Buscemi and even more. Sometimes they're just a shot of comic relief, like when Sebastian Stan beats up Davidson in a coffee shop. But in other moments, they show off the twisted male role models and bizarre personal connections of a man-child celebrity comic coming to terms with his own strange life. Like a Gen Z version of Curb Your Enthusiasm set in Staten Island, Buckus gathers all the contradictions of Davidson's world into one comic stew, eager to show us even he's not exactly sure how he got here. I'm Eric Deggins. When Chief Justice John Roberts declined to appear at a Senate hearing this week, it raised questions about the obligations the judicial branch has to other branches of government. In a few minutes, we'll talk about where Congress and the court go from here. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on All Things Considered in about five minutes, the case the U.S. Supreme Court justices are making that they are not subject to the same kind of accountability as Congress and the executive branch. Also, the race or deaths that have occurred at Churchill Downs this week ahead of the Kentucky Derby. In the forecast, look for fair weather clouds, more sunshine for a bit longer, partly cloudy tonight around the mid-40s, then sunshine over the weekend. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Modern Latin American fare for those seeking flavorful, healthy choices. Catering your office lunch in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of WBWAR's Morning Edition. My mom gave me the gift of my family's food, from dal to chicken curry. She taught me to make them the way she and her mom made them, but she also encouraged me to make my own changes. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with Winston Flowers from WBUR. Your gift will strengthen journalism that fosters independent thinking. Save 10% and choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden doubled down today sharply criticizing Republicans for their refusal to consider a clean bill raising the nation's debt ceiling to avoid a potential default next month, providing little compromise from the White House when the president meets with congressional leaders next week to address the issue. Speaking from the White House this afternoon, Biden said so-called MAGA Republicans are pushing draconian cuts to his administration's spending plan. Their budget would put 21 million people at risk of losing Medicaid, 
It would cut federal law enforcement by 28,000 personnel, 28,000, FBI, DEA, etc. It would cut 100,000 teachers and support staff. It would cut 30 million, 30 million veterans' health care visits. Biden and congressional leaders will meet on Tuesday. The administration wants to see changes to heighten the security uh, of more U.S. military bases. NPR's Kristen Wright tells us that move comes after a Chinese firm tried to build a facility near an air base in the Midwest. The Treasury Department proposal requires foreign citizens and businesses to gain U.S. government approval to buy property within 100 miles of an expanded list of military installations. The rule change would add eight military bases to the list of highly sensitive installations, giving the federal government jurisdiction over land transactions in those surrounding areas. The list includes Grand Forks Air Force Base in North Dakota. A Chinese company tried to build a corn milling plant 12 miles from the base. The Air Force said the project posed a threat to national security, and the plans were eventually dropped. Kristen Wright, NPR News, Washington. Well, stocks finished higher across the board on Wall Street to end the trading week. The Dow up 546 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. School leaders in Framingham say they're making contingency plans in case the district's bus drivers go out on strike. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the strike could start Monday unless the union reaches an agreement with the school bus company North Reading Transportation, known as NRT. Framingham Superintendent Bob Tremblay says if there is a strike, NRT will provide non-union drivers to operate as many buses as possible. Officials will also use the school system's fleet of passenger vehicles to try to pick up about 3,000 students who say they have no other way to get to school. Tremblay adds for now he's hopeful there will be a resolution before next week. But I don't like the fact that our students are used as a lever here, and uh, I'm going to do all I can to uh, make sure we provide our students with an education that they deserve. Westboro and Marlboro schools are also facing potential driver strikes due to stalled negotiations with NRT. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. NRT says last night it made a generous offer to settle negotiations in Framingham, but the union did not accept it. And this morning, NRT says bus drivers walked away from the bargaining table. Federal prosecutors say they do not believe the man accused of planting fake bombs on Harvard's campus last month acted alone. William Giordani is accused of threatening to detonate the devices if he wasn't paid in Bitcoin. The New Hampshire resident is facing extortion and conspiracy charges. His lawyer says he was duped into taking part in the scheme after he responded to an online ad. Today, in Boston federal court, Giordani was released on bail with several conditions. President Biden today named a Massachusetts woman to be his next domestic policy advisor. Neera Tandon grew up in Bedford and until now had been serving as Biden's staff secretary. In 2021, he chose her to lead the Office of Management and Budget, but she ultimately withdrew her nomination. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. A school psychology graduate degree opens rewarding careers working with children. Scholarships available for fall. WilliamJames.edu. And Boston Ballet School's Next Generation, highlighting the best arts training in Boston at the Citizens Bank Opera House on Friday, May 19th. Tickets at bostonballet.org.
So nice to have an afternoon without puddles. Bright sunshine for the next few hours, then a partly cloudy night tonight, lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be sunny once again. A lot milder temperatures could make it close to 70. Then for Sunday, same thing. Sunny, breezy, right up around 70 degrees. 57 degrees now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Grace based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. This is the week the Senate Judiciary Committee wrestled with some of the ethical questions surrounding the Supreme Court and the laws and standards that govern the behavior of this country's judges. We're here today because the Supreme Court of the United States of America does not consider itself bound by these rules. That's committee chair Dick Durbin, a Democrat. He had sent Chief Justice John Roberts an invitation to testify there, but Justice Roberts said he, quote, must respectfully decline. Jamel Bowie argues in a recent op-ed for The New York Times that that exchange illustrates what he calls a key reality of American politics today, quote, Our Supreme Court does not exist in the constitutional order as much as it looms over it. Jamel Bowie joins me now. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Jamel, you argue that even with co-equal branches of government and separation of powers, the Supreme Court has some obligation to Congress. What obligation do you think the court has to Congress in a situation like this? It has an obligation to speak forthrightly with Congress when Congress requests that it do so. And although there is no formal obligation for the courts to go before Congress, in the same way there isn't really a formal obligation for a member of the executive branch to go before Congress, the general norm is that when Congress calls them this way, the respective branches, they should answer, not just as a common courtesy, but as an affirmation of that constitutional order, even if the branches are co-equal. But in this case, John Roberts has said, no, I'm not going to do that. Are you making a case that that's a flaw in our system that he's able to decline? I don't think it's necessarily a flaw, but I do think the comfort with which Chief Justice Roberts felt to decline I think that does say something about the place of the judiciary and particularly the Supreme Court in the American system. And that is the Supreme Court has simply accumulated a great deal of authority. And so I think the refusal here isn't some flaw in our system, but it's a sign of how the court has become a little more than an equal relative to the other branches. Now that Roberts has rebuffed Congress, What do you think Congress should do at this point? It does have the ability to subpoena a justice, but probably not enough votes to do it. So what what options is it left with? Congress can do a lot, theoretically, to, let's say, discipline the court. The Senate can subpoena Roberts. It can subpoena any of the justices. Congress can alter the court's budget. I think Congress can increase the size of the court. Lots of things Congress can do, but those all are dependent on having the votes to do so, and Congress doesn't have the votes to do so. So in terms of practical things Congress could do, forthrightly saying that the court is behaving in unethical ways or members of the court and making that argument to the public, but basically outside of information 
in stagecraft. There isn't a ton practically Congress or the Senate, for that matter, uh, can do, barring Democrats regaining a majority in the House and, and keeping the White House in hand. What does all of this mean for the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, public trust in the court, democracy at large? I'm wondering what you think this has done in, in the public's eye in terms of the court's legitimacy. For the members of the court who presumably want to maintain their legitimacy and presumably want to be able to still have an influence on the shape of American society, on the shape of American law, I think that these recent ethics scandals involving Justice Clarence Thomas in particular, I think the Dobbs ruling and the Bruin rulings from last year about uh, abortion rights and gun rights have dealt a serious blow to the court's reputation and standing. And so the more the court issues rulings that run counter to people's basic intuitions about how the system should work and what they should be able to do within it, and as long as members of the court show kind of a disregard for, if not ethics and ethical propriety, then the court's going to find that the public is just going to be less willing to listen to it and take it seriously. That's Jamel Bowie, a columnist for the New York Times Opinion section. Thank you. Thank you. When the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris caught fire four years ago, one of the most shocking moments was the collapse of its spire and flames. There was initial talk of holding a competition to design a brand new spire for Notre Dame. But as NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports, it will be rebuilt exactly as it used to be. In a vast warehouse in eastern France, dozens of carpenters work on Notre Dame's new spire being crafted from 2,500 oak trees from across France. Four architecture firms that are usually stiff competitors join together to replicate the 19th century spire designed by architect Eugène Viollet-le-Duc and considered a work of beauty and genius. Yeah, absolutely. I feel um, a little bit proud, I will say. Eric van Berkel is one of the craftsmen recreating the spire. But mostly I'm really grateful for, uh, for this uh, opportunity because it's just amazing and really uh, exceptional. And it's a kind of frog once in a, in a lifetime. So, uh... <laughs> Massive logs are being milled for the spire. The original was built in 1859 following a 20-year restoration of the cathedral carried out by Viollet-le-Duc. The spire was a, a masterpiece of carpentry. Something, very, very few examples in the world was possible to see. That's Benjamin Mouton, former chief architect and custodian of Notre Dame. He says at first the intricate wooden tower was controversial, but soon it and other 19th century additions like the gargoyles came to represent not only the cathedral, but the spirit and identity of Paris and of France. If we don't rebuild it as it was, we would break down the unity, architectural unity of the monument. And this is a part of authenticity, spiritual, authenticity of the cathedral. When Notre Dame's spire collapsed on the night of April 15, 2019, it left a gaping hole in the cathedral's roof at the crossing of the nave and transept. The first step to rebuilding it was to erect the spire's base known as the tabouret, which supports its 500-ton weight. The tabouret has just been completed and assembled with the help of a crane, something Viollet-le-Duc never had, over the hole in Notre Dame's vaulted ceiling. Retired Army General Jean-Louis Georgelin is in charge of Notre Dame's restoration. 
He says getting the cathedral ready to reopen by December 2024 is a massive undertaking, but resurrecting the spire is perhaps the most symbolic part. The symbol of a fire was a crash of the spire. And people will be confident in the reopening of the capital when while we see again the spire of a capital in the sky of Paris. Parisians and tourists gather to watch Notre Dame being restored. The cathedral is covered in scaffolding and its famous flying buttresses are buttressed by wooden beams with giant screws. Parisian Pascal Yanko lives nearby. The 66-year-old says he's elated they're putting back Viollet-le-Duc's original masterpiece. The spire is a wonder. Each time I walk in front of the cathedral, before the fire, I watched the profile of the cathedral and I thought it was as beautiful as Brigitte Bardot. I was a big fan of her when I was a kid, you know. And I think the spire goes to this cathedral like my hand in my glove, you know. Notre Dame spire will soon begin to rise into the Paris sky. It is set to be completed this December, a year before the cathedral opens. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Horse racing's Triple Crown kicks off tomorrow with the Kentucky Derby. But its big story so far is not about the competition. This week, four horses died in a five-day span at the Churchill Downs racetrack where the Derby is held. Two were euthanized after suffering injuries. The cause of the other two deaths is still unclear, but the trainer of those horses has been suspended from the Kentucky Derby, and another of his horses has been scratched from the race. Joe Drape covers horse racing for The New York Times and he's with us now. Hi, Joe. Hi, Sasha. Joe, these horse deaths have been a big problem for this industry for a very long time. But in terms of these most recent four deaths, is there anything else you've learned through your reporting about what happened, what caused them? Well, it's being taken very serious. And the first two were deaths on the racetrack. Something happened. It was skeletal, muscular. They could not recover from it, so they were euthanized. The Two sudden deaths is what is puzzles everybody. Uh, you know, there's a new mechanism in place right now called the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Authority. And so they've amped it up. They've taken blood and uh, hair samples. They've investigated, but they're puzzled basically. You know, in my reporting over the years on this has shown that 56% of the time when they do a necropsy, when they examine a horse that had died, they cannot come with a definitive diagnosis or prognosis of what happened to the horse. Churchill Downs put out a statement about these horse deaths and it called them completely unacceptable, but it also said highly unusual. Are they really highly unusual? They are highly unusual. You know, what has happened? They've actually done a pretty good job. We did a series with the Times in the early aughts, and at that point, two horses died per thousand starts. It set off a reform movement. They have an equine injury database. They made some changes in rules and regulations, both on the medications and how they're treated and how the racetracks are configured. And it's almost gone in half to that point. This past year, it was 1.25 per thousand races. And, you know, the fact of the matter is there's never going to be zero fatalities in horse racing. 
And that's what society is eventually going to have to grapple with. Joe, you've reported that the fatality rate in the U.S. is two and a half to five times greater than in the rest of the racing world. What are we doing in the United States that's causing that? Too many medication and drugs. Uh, they pretty much run what we call hay, oats, and waters in the rest of the world. You know, if your horse is sore, you're not going to give him a corticosteroid to get him to the track to race. They're more vigilant with their veterinarian inspections. They're more vigilant with their testing. You know, they just have a different worldview that has worked for them. And not only are we two and a half to five more than them, horse racing is far more popular in the rest of the world than it is in America. Uh, dying here, it seems like. It seems like there's declining interest. Total declining interest. You know, you could argue it's on life support, and it's going to be sort of a hard sunset for that. Horses mean so much to the country. Uh, they help to settle this place. They're such a part of our sports history. You know, it's, it's on life support. They're trying to get it under control. Ultimately, we, me, you, who's watching Saturday or who's not watching Saturday, will decide how long they will tolerate the sport. Joe Drape of the New York Times, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Sasha. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, the tough COVID-19 border restrictions that may face migrants coming from Mexico to the U.S. And then coming up next, former Boston-based Dr. Rochelle Walensky is stepping down as the head of the CDC. It's 448. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham with homegrown vegetable and flowering plants, herbs, perennials, shrubbery, and with a wide selection of pottery, soil, and mulch. VolanteFarms.com and Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com In the forecast, sunshine, fair weather clouds around this afternoon and evening. Partly cloudy overnight tonight. Should be a dry night. Temperatures in the mid-40s once again. And then for the weekend, pretty gorgeous. Sunshine tomorrow and Sunday. Temperatures in the upper 60s to about 70 degrees. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. SemesterOff.com. BG Catering Concepts, planning weddings, corporate events, and other significant celebrations to feel special. BGCateringConcepts.com. And Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners improve energy efficiency. Assessment scheduling at GoEndlessEnergy.com or 775-END-LESS. I'm Deepa Fernandez. My mum gave me her fierce yet kind way of standing up against injustice. She had everyone's back, from the supermarket worker to people who might have gone hungry if she didn't bring them a meal. She taught me that we only rise if we all rise together. Thank your mum this Mother's Day with Winston Flowers from WBUR and you'll support the station that has your back. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Juana Summers. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, is stepping down at the end of June. In a statement, President Biden said that Walensky, quote, leaves CDC a stronger institution, better positioned to confront health threats and protect Americans. NPR's Selena Simmons Duffin is here to tell us more about the announcement and Walensky's time at the CDC. Hey. Hi, Juana. So, Selena, was this a surprise? I did hear from staffers at CDC and others in the public health world today who were surprised. Walensky was just yesterday testifying in front of Congress, and there was no inkling that this was going to drop. But from a political perspective, there's a sense that it was kind of maybe time for her to step aside. And one clue was that the news actually broke when the White House commented on her departure. Mm. CDC's email announcing she would step down came an hour later. Okay, so remind us, if you can, who she is and what her background was before she was the head of the CDC. She is a physician with a background in HIV. When President Biden appointed her, she was running the Infectious Disease Division at Massachusetts General Hospital, and she was a professor of medicine at Harvard. I spoke to several people who knew her well when the appointment was announced who were just over the moon. I mean, she was known as a charismatic, an incredibly smart leader. Um, But this was a tough assignment. Today, I spoke with Drew Altman. He's president and CEO of KFF. And he says it's important to remember this context. She led the CDC at perhaps the most challenging time in its history in the middle of an absolute crisis after a period of time during the Trump administration when it had been politicized. Remember, it was a year into the pandemic. CDC had been found to have changed public health guidance based on political interference. There were accusations about how data was being handled. It was an incredibly challenging moment for CDC. Right. And so thinking back in early 2021, she came to Atlanta to run this huge public health agency. How would you describe her time there? Well, for Americans, she became a familiar face in regular White House pandemic briefings alongside Dr. Anthony Fauci at NIH. But even in the first year, she faced criticism for communication missteps. So, for example, she told people that once you got vaccinated, you couldn't spread COVID-19. And in the summer of 2021, more data made clear that that was not true. And that made her the target of a lot of vitriol, especially from Republican lawmakers and media figures. She was also criticized for mask guidance and confusing booster guidance. And she survived calls for her to go in all of those cases. But I've heard that the Biden administration was in favor of her leaving and just couldn't find a good time without stressing the pandemic response. Mm. Um, So it seems like the end of the public health emergency that's scheduled for next week offers a natural transition. And Altman and others give her credit for trying to depoliticize CDC, put it on a better track. She started a reorganization that's ongoing. And Altman says she led the agency with science and dignity. Um, In Walensky's letter to CDC staff today, she describes her departure as one of mixed emotions and wrote, quote, I have never been prouder of anything I have done in my professional career. Okay, last thing, any sense of who will replace her? Not yet. She will remain on the job through the end of June, so there is time. This is a presidential appointment at this point. There is no Senate confirmation process, so President Biden will just have to make his pick. Okay, we will watch and wait. Selena Simmons and thank you. Thank you. President Biden has picked his campaign manager for the 2024 election, Julie Chavez Rodriguez. She's a behind-the-scenes player in Democratic politics for years, but part of her history has a prominent place in the Oval Office, a bronze bust of iconic labor leader Cesar Chavez. That's her grandfather. And Paris Franco Ordonez has more. As a kid, Julie Chavez Rodriguez got an early taste of the power of a well-organized campaign, 
watching and listening to her grandfather lead farm workers. All my life, I have been driven by one dream, one goal, one vision. To overthrow a farm labor system in this nation that treats farm workers as if they were not important human beings. That's Cesar Chavez in 1984 at the Commonwealth Club of California, announcing a boycott of grapes. Julie Chavez Rodriguez was just six, but she was already starting to get involved, passing out flyers at union headquarters. Her uncle, Paul Chavez, says she was like a sponge, soaking up all that was happening. I can remember uh, her coming home from school. Yeah, She was elementary school, maybe middle school. They're coming in and just like having a curiosity and coming to the offices and there was meetings and what can I do to help? When she was nine, she was arrested while picketing with her parents at a local grocery store. It's those kind of experiences that will impact a person and, and it helps really form who they are. After college, she volunteered for the Obama campaign and then joined his administration. She caught the eye of one of former President Barack Obama's closest advisors, Valerie Jarrett. I can't think of a single time I didn't follow her advice and counsel. They worked on connecting the White House with all different kinds of constituencies, from business to labor to advocates. Jarrett says Chavez Rodriguez always did her homework, but never traded on her last name. Not even when Obama flew to California to dedicate a national monument to Cesar Chavez. When it came time for the president to pose for photos with the family, Chavez Rodriguez stood back. And I saw Julie standing way off to the side. And I said, Julie, why aren't you in the photo? And she said, no, no, I'm staffing. And I said, Julie, you're his granddaughter. She went on to work for then-Senator Kamala Harris and joined Biden's 2020 campaign after the bruising primary battle. It was a time when there were a lot of questions about whether he could unite the party. Jen O'Malley Dillon ran Biden's 2020 campaign. You know, she's one of those people that I remember the first meeting I had with her. O'Malley Dillon is now Biden's deputy chief of staff, but spoke to NPR in her personal capacity. She called Chavez Rodriguez an extraordinary partner who has spent her life fighting for causes that the president champions. What she is carrying on her shoulders, um, uh, there is not a bigger job when it comes to this work. Uh, and there is nobody that's more ready for it because of the path that she's had to get to this point. Chavez Rodriguez was pressed into action early, defending Biden after he made a gaffe that angered black voters. Here she was on MSNBC. I'll tell you what is very clear is, and Joe Biden's you know record for civil rights and for equity is one that I will put up against Donald Trump's any day. Biden is known for counting on a very small circle of political advisors. Some of them have been with him for decades. Chavez Rodriguez doesn't have that kind of history with him, but she clearly has his trust as Democratic Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey. You could tell when somebody's got the command of the room and the respect of the principal. Uh, she is in the cockpit. Since Biden took office, Chavez Rodriguez has been his point person with governors and mayors. She also has strong connections with unions, which are a big part of his message. Paul Chavez says his father wouldn't be surprised his granddaughter is playing such an important role in politics, but he'd be proud. The interesting thing is that um, for all those years that my dad led the Formica movement, he was never invited to the White House. And now uh, his granddaughter is running the re-election campaign for the president who seeks to you know, remain in the White House. And he sees a bit of poetic justice in that. Franco Ordonez, NPR News.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people achieve quality sleep. Customers can shop their range of products in-store or online at mattressfirm.com. From Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from Progressive Insurance, Progressive is looking for individuals in a variety of career fields who want to help build a culture of inclusiveness. More information, including application, at progressive.com careers. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by DEC, working with CEOs, business leaders, and industry experts with a goal of crafting clear, authentic presentations. More at presentationsbydeck.com. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Pandemic restrictions at the border are set to end next week, and many migrants from Mexico don't want to wait to cross into the U.S. It is a lot of fear that something tremendous is going to change and they will never have an opportunity, and now is the time. They are scared and desperate. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also ahead, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, has a long record of conservative activism. A new report raises questions on whether judicial activists secretly gave her money. And the leader of the committee for the World Video Game Hall of Fame tells us what it takes for a game to be inducted. You really need to meet four criteria. Icon status, longevity, geographical reach, and influence. And that's probably the most important of the categories. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas visited the southern border today to tour a migrant processing facility ahead of an expected jump in the number of illegal border crossings. This as Title 42, a health law enacted during the pandemic to control migration at the southern border, expires next week. We will, by May 11th, finalize the rule that we published in a proposed format that provides that individuals who do not access our lawful pathways will be presumed to be ineligible for asylum and will have a higher burden of proof to overcome that presumption of ineligibility. Mayorkas met with Mexico's president today over plans to prevent smugglers from exploiting vulnerable people with misinformation about their ability to cross into the U.S. President Biden says Republicans are manufacturing a crisis over the debt limit. In Pierre's Franco Ordonez reports, Biden's pointing to a strong jobs report to tout his economic policies. U.S. employers added 253,000 jobs in April, significantly more than what forecasters expected. 
Speaking at the White House, President Biden took some credit, arguing the numbers reflect investments his administration has made in the economy. And he accused some Republicans of threatening to undo this progress over a fight about the debt ceiling. The last thing this country needs, after all we've been through, is a manufactured crisis. And that's what this is, a manufactured crisis. Republicans have threatened not to raise the debt ceiling unless it comes with deep cuts to the federal budget. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. The World Health Organization says COVID-19 is no longer a global health emergency. But the WHO says ending the more than three-year-old declaration doesn't mean COVID is over as a global health threat and says thousands of people are still dying from the virus on a monthly basis. Meanwhile, as NPR's Rob Stein reports, the CDC says it will scale back the agency's reporting of COVID data. The CDC says the end of the public health emergency next week means the agency will no longer be getting as much information about the virus. Virus. So the CDC will stop reporting how many people are catching the virus on a community level. But the CDC does plan to continue to report how many people are ending up in emergency rooms, requiring hospitalization, and dying from COVID. Here's Dr. Narif Shaw from the CDC. In short, we will still be able to tell that it's snowing, even though we're no longer counting every snowflake. But some experts worry the change could make the nation vulnerable to again getting blindsided by the virus. Rob Stein, NPR News. Wall Street sharply higher by the closing bell. The Dow up 546 points. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Rochelle Walensky will step down as the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention at the end of June. Walensky leaves the CDC as the pandemic public health emergency declaration is set to expire next week. President Biden credited the former Mass General Hospital doctor and infectious disease specialist with leading the CDC with, quote, honesty and integrity throughout the pandemic. Some public health experts have questioned her decisions on COVID testing and mask requirements and how she explained that guidance. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu announced today the city will distribute $100,000 to community groups to help make Boston neighborhoods safer. Some of the money will create safe public spaces in areas where there's been violence. Bishop Nicholas Homiseal is with the Voice of the Gospel Tabernacle in Mattapan. He wants to limit young people's exposure to criminal activities. This is the right time to keep them busy, get them a job, get them a good training, so they won't have that much time to be on the street and doing one thing or to be in the uh, one place at the one time. Boston is spending $19 million to expand the number of summer jobs. That's the city's largest investment in the history of the program. The Worcester School Committee is asking for a state-appointed mediator to intervene in the contract talks with teachers. More than 20 bargaining sessions this year have failed to produce an agreement. Teachers are asking for higher pay. The union rejected Worcester's latest offer of an average salary increase of more than 18 percent. And Massachusetts lawmakers are calling for more trees to be planted across the state. New legislation would give communities money to develop reforestation plans. David Meshalum of Speak for the Trees advised lawmakers on the bill. He says trees help build healthier communities. Those communities that lack trees are usually the ones that are most in need of them. So these are communities that might have more vulnerable populations, populations that 
might have less access to resources, language barriers, economic barriers. The legislation would require most cities and towns to take part. Boston is working on a similar proposal specifically for the city. Celtics are in Philadelphia to play the 76ers tonight in their second round of playoffs. Both teams have won one game so far. Red Sox are also in Philadelphia. Chris Sale pitches against the Phillies tonight. And in the forecast, a beautiful evening, fair weather clouds overnight, down around the mid-40s once again. And then for the weekend, we should have two beautiful sunny days. Should reach 70 degrees both Saturday and Sunday with light winds around. It's 5.07. WBUR supporters include Jarl and Pamela Moon, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Juana Summers. A new report is putting the spotlight back on Jenny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. There are some questions about payments she received about a decade ago. At the time, Thomas had been staking out a role as an emerging player in the Tea Party movement. Here she is on ABC in 2010, celebrating the party's growth. I think it's an American thing. I think people are rebelling and there's a big tidal wave coming. Now, a new report from The Washington Post has plunged the Supreme Court further into controversy. NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales is here with more. Hi there. Hi, Juana. So, Claudia, let's start with the findings in this Washington Post story. How does this reporting connect and play into the controversies that the court was already facing? Right. The Post reported that in 2012, a conservative judicial activist directed tens of thousands of dollars to Ginny Thomas for consulting work. This activist, Leonard Leo, has had business before the court. He's on the board for the Federalist Society and had major a major role shaping the Supreme Court and overturning the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I talked to University of Texas law professor Steve Vladek about all this. He has a book coming out on the court later this month. Vladek told me that this latest reporting adds to a mounting push to stop justices from policing themselves. The stronger these connections, the more money we're talking about, the closer Jenny Thomas was to you know, various of these players before the court, the more that calls into question whether Justice Thomas should have been participating in at least some of these cases. So he argues what's missing here is some of the independent, some sort of independent accountability mechanism that will sort these stories from what's actual conflicts of interest to just tabloid material. Okay. So far, any response to these claims from either Justice Thomas and his wife, Jenny, or Leonard Leo, the judicial activist you mentioned? Leo said in a statement that, quote, the work she did here did not involve anything connected with either the court's business or with other legal issues. He said that in response to Ginny's work. And I also reached out to an attorney for the Thomases. This attorney did not immediately respond, but at least when we look at Ginny Thomas and her history here, she has repeatedly defended her work in politics. That's right. And we should just point out that this is not the first time that there have been questions raised about her political work and related conflicts facing the court. Yes. So previously, she has made it her mission in life to lift conservatism in a new way from when she was a student and studied law at Creighton University in her hometown of Omaha, Nebraska. She even weighed a run for Congress. It was around the time of her studies in the 1980s that she married Justice Thomas when he was chair of the Equal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Yeah. So, I mean, she has this mission, clear passion for conservatism, but along the way, she's also run into controversy. 
Right. Thomas was actively involved in efforts to overturn the 2020 election, according to text messages obtained by the January 6th committee, who had her testify for several hours behind closed doors last year. In the end, she was not a key figure in that probe, but there was controversy because Justice Thomas last year was the lone dissenter in a case before the court that allowed the panel to access Trump White House records. And now the timing of this new report casts an even sharper glare on the ethics crisis facing the Supreme Court today. What are the next steps? I talked to several members of Congress about this this week, including Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin, who said their hands are tied here. The key to this is Chief Justice Roberts. He alone has the authority and the power to change the ethical standards of the court. Democrats just don't have enough buy-in from Republicans to push legislation forward to install new ethics guidelines. But the theme I heard today was real frustration Mm. that no one beyond the court of public opinion can weigh in on these questions of justice's alleged conflicts of interest. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you. Thank you much. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas was back at the U.S.-Mexico border today, where pandemic restrictions are set to lift in less than a week. After that, thousands of migrants may then cross the border illegally to seek asylum. But they'll encounter a new set of policies that could push many of them right back to Mexico. A quick warning, this story mentions sexual assault. NPR's Joel Rose reports. A dozen children race around a migrant shelter in Tijuana, squeezing between rows and rows of tents packed into a modest warehouse. The shelter is known as Juventud 2000, and like most in Tijuana, it is way beyond full. There's a lot of people showing up. Several groups of families knock on the door every day, and because the shelter is beyond capacity, they are not allowed to come in. This is Yasmin, who's staying at the shelter along with her one-year-old son. She doesn't want to give her last name because she fled from Guerrero in southern Mexico after she was raped, she says, for being a lesbian. And she doesn't want the men who did it to find her. Yasmin and others here are desperate to apply for asylum in the U.S. There's a lot of confusion, she says, about what will happen when the border restrictions known as Title 42 finally end. Of course we are talking here as a community about the possibility of crossing illegally if we don't have other options. That is what's causing us stress right now. That stress is palpable in towns and migrant camps all along the border. No one knows exactly how many migrants are waiting in Mexico after fleeing from violence, poverty, and political instability all over the hemisphere and beyond. Or what those migrants will do if Title 42 lifts next week as scheduled. But in the short run, nearly everyone, migrants and advocates, border city mayors, even the Secretary of Homeland Security, is bracing for a big jump in migration. There's going to be chaos. Priscilla Orta is an immigration attorney with Lawyers for Good Government. She's based in Brownsville, Texas, and works with migrants across the border in Matamoros. Orta says she tells them to be patient, to wait for a chance to cross legally to make their asylum claims. But she says many don't want to wait. It is a lot of fear that something tremendous is going to change and they will never have an opportunity, and now is the time. So people are beginning to attempt to cross, even though everyone tells them not to because they are scared and desperate. The Department of Homeland Security is preparing for an influx of migrants, requesting 1,500 active-duty troops to support the Border Patrol temporarily. But immigration hardliners and many Republicans say that won't be enough. They're urging the Biden administration to keep Title 42 in place. Here's Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Come next week, all hell is going to break loose 
along the border and eventually would flow into the interior of the United States. While the early days after Title 42 lifts may be chaotic, immigration experts say what comes next could look a lot like what's already happening at the border. The Biden administration has announced tough new restrictions on asylum to discourage migrants from crossing illegally, and it's getting ready to enforce them. The agency that handles initial screening interviews, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, is redirecting hundreds of asylum officers to focus on the border. They're in this sort of all-hands-on-deck situation. Michael Knowles is president of the local union chapter that represents those asylum officers. The union has come out strongly against proposed new rules that would make it much harder for migrants to get asylum if they cross the border illegally after passing through Mexico or another country. Noel says that's a violation of U.S. immigration law and a betrayal of the country's values. It is lawful for them to seek asylum, and these new rules would effectively prevent our asylum officers from giving those asylum seekers a fair hearing. This week, the government of Mexico agreed to continue taking back migrants from four countries, Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua, when they are deported from the U.S. That's critical to the Biden administration's plans because those countries make up a large and growing share of border crossings. So Title 42 may be ending, but the future for many asylum seekers may not be very different at all. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. Sixty years ago, thousands of children took to the streets in Birmingham, Alabama, to protest racism and discrimination. Today, teens gathered again to reenact that historic moment. Kyra Miles from member station WBHM reports they're learning how to continue the movement. Hundreds of students march on Kelly Ingram Park in Birmingham. They hold signs that read, We Shall Overcome, and Hands Up, Don't Shoot. Terrence Miller says it's an honor to stand where many other student activists stood 60 years ago. They're giving us the potential, the opportunity, and the idea to actually do it ourselves today. Kind of feels amazing. I'm glad that they actually took the opportunity and the chance and the risk to do all of it. Today is a reenactment of the Children's March of 1963. Back then, thousands of students walked out of their classrooms to get arrested. It was part of a plan by civil rights leaders like James Bevel to force change in America in a controversial way, using kids. Here he is from the Eyes on the Prize documentary. We wanted to get the black community in Birmingham involved, and the way you get people involved is get their children involved. On what they called D-Days, kids marching were met with intense water hoses and police dogs. The images of children being carted away to jail in school buses shocked the American public. It got the attention of President Kennedy. The events in Birmingham and elsewhere have so increased the cries for equality that no city or state or legislative body can prudently choose to ignore them. And lawmakers couldn't ignore it. The 1963 Children's Crusade was a catalyst for rapid progress in the civil rights movement. Reverend Gwen Webb was 14 when she marched from 16th Street Baptist Church in 1963. She says today gives her hope. To see all of these young people, our leaders of today, the Word of God tells us train up a child in the way that it should go. In this year's march, students still call for equal rights and an end to discrimination. 17-year-old Dion Arnold says they also have battles unique to now. A lot of 
new issues like social media, the internet, AI, all these new foes that we have to face in the upcoming years, and the biggest one being climate change. He says even 60 years later, student activists are at the forefront of change. They're not only the present, but the future. For NPR News, I'm Kyra Miles in Birmingham. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, a historic announcement today from the World Health Organization. COVID-19 is no longer a global emergency. The effects of the proclamation coming up. And coming up next, Marvel Studios is superhero fatigue starting to kick in. It's 518. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Grogan and Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, whose spring auction weekend is May 6th and 7th. Learn more at groganco.com. And Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. Complexstories.com. If you're used to watching TV when and how you want, you can now do the same thing with listening to the radio. You can pause and rewind live radio with the new WBUR app. Download it today at the App Store. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Museum of Science. Maneuver through mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games. Coming soon, mos.org. Well, the sunshine was worth waiting for. A beautiful evening, few fair-weather clouds around tonight, back down in the mid-40s. Then for the weekend, we should have even more sunny days. Tomorrow should reach about 70 degrees. Sunday, the same thing, light winds throughout the weekend. This is 90.9 WBUR, 55 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Tomorrow is the coronation of King Charles III. The ceremony in London will be full of pomp and pageantry, but there will also be some big changes to this ritual that's more than a thousand years old. NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from London. The iconic boy sopranos of the Choir of Westminster Abbey have been rehearsing all week to perform at King Charles III's coronation, including 12-year-old Casper, who spoke to reporters. It's exciting. It's quite nerve-wracking. It's it's an honor. Just quite nervous. Aside from performing for the king, he'll have to contend with something else. This is the first coronation in which girl choristers will sing with the boys of this 14th-century choir. The role of the monarchy is to represent the nation to itself, and it must reflect, therefore, modern society in all its diversity. Royal expert Robert Hazel says the ceremony will reflect King Charles's own vision for a more humble, in-touch, up-to-date monarchy. He'll still arrive at the Abbey in a horse-drawn carriage, but it's got power windows and AC. 
The parade route will be shorter than his mother's. All Britons, not just aristocrats, will be asked to swear allegiance. And there will be a mention of other faiths besides Christianity. There are some parts of this ancient rite that cannot change, though, says historian Alice Hunt. He can't change the oath. The prayers and the liturgy, we won't know what changes have been made until we see it. So there may be some surprises, but the king will still have to swear to be a faithful Protestant. He'll still carry a golden orb with a cross and two scepters encrusted with jewels. And he'll still be anointed in a secret ceremony behind a screen. And that is with holy oil, probably in three places, hands, breast and head. And that is when the monarch is understood to actually become king, that something changes at that moment. Thousands of soldiers have been rehearsing on military bases and at 2 a.m. in central London all week. For what will be their biggest ceremonial operation in 70 years. The carriage and the horses and royals all dressed in their finery and proud to be British, aren't you? Lorraine Franklin, Mandy Long and Kay Paget came down to Buckingham Palace to check out the decorations. But they're not the norm. Polls show a majority of Britons don't want to abolish the monarchy, but are otherwise pretty apathetic towards it. An enthusiasm for the monarchy, so the people that can reasonably be called royalists, is sort of anything from 9 to 15 percent at tops. Graham Smith is the head of Republic, an anti-monarchy group that's mobilizing coronation protesters. So I will be on uh, Trafalgar Square right up alongside the procession route protesting very loudly. Um, We'll be chanting, not my king, when Charles goes past. This coronation is being held during a painful cost of living crisis. Many Britons' energy bills have doubled. Food prices are way up. A scaled-back ceremony for royals may still look over the top to taxpayers, whose bill for this weekend's events could exceed $125 million. This one, or this one, or this one. King Charles, the coronation. Yeah, coronation. 15 pounds today. Hey, tomorrow, maybe change the price. Fernando Santos has a kiosk across the street from Big Ben. He normally sells Union Jack magnets. Now he's selling mugs and flags with King Charles's face on them. How many have you sold? Hundreds? Thousands? Hundreds, hundreds, pieces selling today. Is business good? Business good. Alhamdulillah. He sees this coronation not as a moment of national pride, but just a welcome little boost for his business. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. For the last 15 years, Hollywood has been ruled by one thing. I am Iron Man. We're the guardians of the galaxy. Prince T'Challa, the Black Panther. Avengers! Assemble. Since 2008's Iron Man jump-started the Marvel Cinematic Universe, superhero films have been a dominant force in the industry, but is that starting to fade? Recent box office returns have some pundits whispering of superhero fatigue. We wanted to ask an expert, so we called NPR's pop culture happy hour host and resident comic book fan Glenn Weldon. He has already seen Marvel's 32nd film, Guardians (laughs) of the Galaxy Volume 3. It comes out today. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Juana. So you review Guardians of the Galaxy 3 for NPR's website. And for those who have not read your review like I have, you are not so into it. Why? 
No, I mean, like, the reason Guardians 3 didn't hit me um, is in its approach to its subject. So here we're going to get the backstory of the character Rocket Raccoon, who, for listeners who don't know, is a CGI critter who's voiced by Bradley Cooper, doing a Brooklyn D's and those kind of accent for precisely no reason. Um, we've gotten hints that he has a tragic backstory and that he came to be through he was through sinister animal experimentation. So there's a reason here. You go into his thing. If you're expecting a wacky escapist space romp like the previous two films, you're going to come out of that. You're going to be sitting in the lobby going... You know, there was a lot more vivisection in that film than I expected. And there's a plot reason to dramatize that. You have to give the character's backstory. But the problem is how James Gunn, the writer-director, goes about it. He doesn't trust that we, the audience, have even a baseline empathy or, or humanity to know that people who are bad to animals are bad and that, mm-hmm. uh, and that animal cruelty is bad. So he just overloads this thing with all kinds of mawkish, maudlin, super sentimental stuff. Yeah, it just kind of soured me in the whole thing. I mean, I get the sense from our conversation that you felt that James Gunn, the director, was practically begging for the viewer to care about what happens, which I think brings us to this bigger discussion about where Marvel and superhero movies are right now. I mean, we should just note that recent films like The Last Ant-Man, The Eternals, Thor 4, they haven't done as well as previous Marvel hits. Mm -hmm. What do you think these latest films say about the current direction that Marvel's going in? Well, I mean, superhero films, that's a genre, right? It's like any other genre. Genres have cycles, right? So gangster films had a heyday, westerns had a heyday, paranoid thrillers had a heyday in the 70s. It's not the genre itself, it's the execution. And one thing you can say about Marvel is that they have varied the approach in the very different movies. So if you want a sweeping space epic, you got one. If you want gritty street-level brawlers, if you want sitcom satire, if you want mystical mumbo-jumbo, if you want whatever the hell Eternals was, <laughs> you got it. You know, that's, that's a way to combat it, and I think that's a smart approach that they're taking. I mean, even James Gunn himself has talked about this idea of superhero fatigue, though he says it's tied more to the way the stories were told, not necessarily the subgenre itself. But for you, are you feeling the fatigue? Are we Have we reached peak superhero? Well, what's happening is that in the first few phases of Marvel films, they could expect that an audience would understand that these films build on each other. And they'd expect you, the audience, to understand what was going on and, and have all these other films that came before it in mind. That is now over. We are now so far into this fragmentation with things, with all these movies happening and all these streaming series happening on Disney+, Plus, that that is not a reasonable expectation for them to have anymore. So what's going to happen, I think, is that these movies are going to have a bigger pressure to be standalone stories and stand on their own, not depending on an audience to have a wiki very handy that they can go in and consult while they're watching the movie. Look what happened to Westerns. I think that's a good example. Like, once people tired of the formula of Westerns, then people started deconstructing the genre. So it started interrogating this whole notion of, of white hat, black hats. And so you started questioning this whole idea of what the Old West was. I think that's what we're due for, is for somebody to really tackle this notion, uh, this monolithic notion of the superhero, and unpack it. Glenn Weldon is a host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. The federal home loan bank system was created to support home ownership, but also loaned billions to failing banks such as First Republic. Coming up in about 15 minutes, is it an unsung hero of the financial system or an enabler of troubled banks? Also ahead, the four video games that have been tapped to join the World Video Game Hall of Fame. In sports, the eyes of Boston sports fans are on Philadelphia tonight. Seltzer and Philly for Game 3 of their playoff series with the 76ers. The series is tied up at one game apiece. Tip-off time is 7.30. Also in the city of brotherly love, the Red Sox will go for their seventh win in a row. They open a three-game series with the Phillies at 7.05.
WBUR supporters include Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness, located in Littleton, Mass. More at SoaringHawkCenter.com. And Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus online programs May 8th to 14th at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Information at NativePlantTrust.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, country star Brad Paisley talked about playing his songs for his teenage kids. So we listened to it in the kitchen, and and Huck, my oldest, said, well, they can't all be gems. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for this week's Wait, Wait, when we ask Ray Romano what his kids think of his work. That's the News Quiz from NPR. Tomorrow at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The World Health Organization says COVID-19 is no longer a global emergency, lifting its public health declaration today, more than three years after it went into effect, disrupting economies, travel, and businesses on a global scale. Here's WHO Director Dr. Tedros Adnam Gabriesis. For more than a year, the pandemic has been on a downward trend with population immunity increasing from vaccination and infection, mortality decreasing, and the pressure on health systems easing. This trend has allowed most countries to return to life as we knew it before COVID-19. But health officials warn the coronavirus isn't going anywhere and advise people to get vaccinated, including booster doses if they qualify, Today's announcement comes just days ahead of an expected CDC declaration officially ending the COVID-19 emergency here in the U.S. This news also comes on the same day CDC director Dr. Rochelle Walensky announced she's stepping down, as NPR's Tamara Keith reports. Walensky's tenure was rife with challenges, from high-profile departures to controversy over masks, vaccines, and COVID guidelines for students returning to school during the pandemic. In a statement, President Biden said Dr. Walensky has saved lives and, quote, led a complex organization on the front lines of a once-in-a-generation pandemic with honesty and integrity. He added that she leaves the CDC a stronger institution and wished her, quote, the best in her next chapter. It's not clear at this time who will replace her. The announcement of Walensky's decision to step down comes the same day the World Health Organization lifted the international COVID emergency. The U.S. COVID emergency is set to end next week. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Firefighters in Newburyport have spent the day removing potentially hazardous materials from a pharmaceutical plant after yesterday's lethal explosion. The city's acting deputy fire chief says the explosion happened while chemicals were being processed. He says the air quality around the plant is safe. One worker was killed in the blast. He's been identified as 62-year-old Jack O'Keefe of Methuen. The Environmental Protection Agency says in 2006 and 2019, it took action against the company, sequenced PCI synthesis for safety violations. Parents, health experts, and environmental justice advocates are asking federal regulators to protect the public against the health risks of gas stoves. The stoves are a leading cause of pediatric asthma in the state, according to the Department of Public Health. Here's WBR's Barbara Moran. 
44% of Massachusetts households use gas stovetops, which can emit particulate matter and leak hazardous chemicals like benzene. The Greater Boston Physicians for Social Responsibility is among the groups asking for warning labels, regulation, and better consumer education. Brita Lundberg chairs the group. Yes, it's super important that there be labels. It's super important that there be external ventilation. But benzene and particulate matter are harmful to health at any level. The Consumer Product Safety Commission is accepting public comment on gas stoves until Monday, May 8th. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Barbara Moran. Police are searching for a woman who's accused of stabbing a man in a Newton parking lot last night. They say it happened on Onantum Road. The victim is identified as a 32-year-old Quincy man. He told police he was outside his car when the woman got out of her own vehicle and confronted him with a knife. Police say his wounds are not life-threatening. No word on a motive for the stabbing. It's 534. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the How God Works podcast. Boston Live taping May 15th. Explore Gen Z's collapsing happiness and how ancient wisdom can help. HowGodWorks.org. Sunshine and fair weather clouds around for a couple more hours. Partly cloudy and dry tonight, falling to the mid-40s. Then for the weekend, pretty beautiful, sunny skies. Temperatures rising all the way to the upper 60s to about 70. Sunday, ditto, sunny, right about 70 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery, Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Today, the head of the World Health Organization held a press conference to make this major announcement. It's therefore with great hope that I declare COVID-19 over as a global health emergency. With us now is NPR Global Health Correspondent Narit Eisenman. Hi, Narit. Hi, Sasha. It has been a long, rough road to get here. And even though many people feel like they put COVID behind them a while ago, was there a sense that this is momentous news? Yeah. I mean, I had chills listening to this press conference. You could hear the emotion in the voices of WHO officials. WHO's head, Tedros Adam Ghebreyesus, noted that it was way back in January 30th of 2020 when he declared that the then still pretty nascent COVID-19 outbreak was a global emergency. And in the more than three years since, as Tedros put it, COVID-19 turned our world upside down, causing nearly 7 million reported deaths around the world, with the actual death toll probably closer to 20 million. And, you know, prior to today, Tedros considered lifting the emergency 14 separate times. But each time he decided that, no, the world hadn't made enough progress. Did he say what convinced him it's different this time? Yeah, he said the mortality rate is now low enough and immunity is high enough that most countries have been able to return to life as we knew it before COVID. And so it's time to shift from the emergency phase into managing this as a chronic problem alongside other chronic diseases. So it sounds like they're not actually saying the pandemic is over. 
exactly. What they're saying is that this is no longer an emergency. But Tedra stressed that this is still a pandemic, COVID is still a big killer, and it's still a global threat. Countries need to keep up with their response, and very importantly, they're monitoring for new variants that could make the coronavirus much more deadly. Tedra said if that happens, he won't hesitate to declare a new global emergency. And Narit, remind us, if he were to do that, what does it mean when the World Health Organization takes that step? It's basically the highest alarm WHO can sound. Now, it's largely symbolic in that it doesn't trigger binding rules on countries, but it's a very powerful tool for mobilizing the world's attention and resources. It makes it much easier to set up all kinds of mechanisms for countries to coordinate with each other and to fast track regulatory approvals on vaccines and treatments. Um, That said, WHO is calling on countries to hammer out an agreement for a new and improved system. They say so many COVID deaths could have been avoided if countries had moved faster and smarter and shared more vaccines and other resources. Maria Van Kerkhove is a top WHO official. She spoke very passionately about this. Let's take a listen. It didn't have to be this way. And it doesn't have to be this way again. So we can't forget the images of the hospitals filled to capacity, the images of our loved ones who died with healthcare workers who ensured that they didn't die alone. We can't forget the graves that were dug. I won't forget them. None of us up here will forget them. And that drives us every single day to do better and to do more. So while I am hopeful and I, and I really am, I'm quite emotional because there's more we need to do. Quite a reminder of what we all went through, especially people in the healthcare field. Yeah, definitely. That is Nareet Eisenman. Nareet, thank you very much. Glad to do it. They're the soundtrack of a generation. And this week, the Video Game Hall of Fame at the Strong National Museum of Play announced the inductees to the Class of 2023. Here to talk about which games had the highest score this year is John Paul Dyson, who leads the committee for the World Video Game Hall of Fame. John Paul Dyson, welcome to All Things Considered. Glad to talk to you. Thank you. All right. So let's start off by hearing a little bit more about the Video Game Hall of Fame. It includes games like World of Warcraft, Super Mario Brothers, and of course, the classic game Tetris. What does it take to get a spot on this list? Well, to make it into the World Video Game Hall of Fame, you really need to meet four criteria. Those are icon status, everyone knows the game, longevity, the game's been around for a while, geographical reach, and influence. And that's probably the most important of the categories. And sometimes a game will get in when it meets that factor, even if all the other ones don't apply. And so these are the games that really endure, the games that have shaped not only video gaming, but also culture in and of itself. So this year, there are four new members being inducted into the Video Game Hall of Fame. Tell us about the class of 2023. The class of 2023 is one that really crosses the spectrum of video games in terms of where you played them, when you played them, and I think most importantly, who played them. The oldest was Computer Space, stand-up arcade game. Then came Barbie Fashion Designer, a breakthrough PC game, especially for girls. Wii Sports brought a lot of people into gaming in the mid-2000s. And The Last of Us came out 10 years ago and has been a breakout hit ever since. 
I actually want to start with The Last of Us, which I think a lot of people may know from the incredible HBO show by the same title. It's a first-person story-based game. It's not that old compared to some of the other games that are being inducted this year. Why did the committee select this game? What is so special about this particular installment in The Last of Us franchise? It shows this distillation of a number of trends in video gaming in general. But it really brought all these elements together of the play, the story, the character development, and did so in a way that showed that games had this real storytelling power that wasn't always prevalent in earlier games. One of the other games in this year's class that I definitely want to talk to you about because I remember playing it is the 1996 PC game Barbie Fashion Designer. Hi, I'm Barbie. Let's make some fun clothes for me to wear. And I just have to tell you, even hearing that music and Barbie's voice just kind of takes me back to the 1990s when I was playing that game. And according to the museum, Barbie fashion designer was selling over 500,000 copies in two months, earning over $120 million in the first year of the game's release. And I'm curious what made this game stand out. And if you can talk a little bit about the gender dynamics here, because at the time growing up, I remember most games, they weren't geared towards girls. It was rare to see a game that was about fashion, certainly. Yeah, with Barbie Fashion Designer, you take these age-old play patterns of doll play, whether it's paper dolls or Barbies, and you bring them to the virtual world. And there wasn't really much for girls. And so by finding a way to get the software into the toy aisle, Mattel brought in a whole new generation of gamers. Do you have a favorite game of all the video games that are in the Hall of Fame? What's your favorite game to play? I must admit that the Oregon Trail back in the day was one for me that really uh, just is a charmy. And Centipede is still just a blast to play. Luckily, we have an arcade version of Centipede, so I can play it here in the original. That was John Paul Dyson of the Strong National Museum of Play speaking with us about the latest inductees into the Video Game Hall of Fame. Hey, thanks so much for talking with us. My pleasure. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We've seen some high-profile bank failures this year. All of them, including First Republic, borrowed money from federal home loan banks before their demise. Darian Woods and Waylon Wong from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, explain how this 90-year-old piece of financial architecture works and why it might need an update. If you're not working in the banking or housing industries, you might not ever have heard of the federal home loan bank system. They provide funding to other banks in the form of loans. That money goes towards helping banks that might be struggling with declining deposits or liquidity issues. And the federal home loan bank system has been playing this role since 1932. 
At first, membership in the system was limited to financial institutions that provided mortgages. But in 1989, the system was opened up to commercial banks and credit unions. Aaron Klein is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. The home loan bank system has one of the great business models of society. So here's what the federal home loan banks do. They raise money by selling bonds. Then they lend money to their members, often at lower rates than what their member banks can get elsewhere. Now, a bank that wants one of these loans has to provide collateral. And a common form of collateral is a mortgage. Let's say a bank that's taken out one of these loans gets into trouble and fails. The home loan bank gets to go in first through a legal mechanism called a super lien and be made whole. Federal home loan banks get to jump at the front of the queue to get paid back. But Aaron says this super lien has created a bit of a problem. It's made the federal home loan banks more willing to lend money to banks that could be considered risky borrowers. And this dynamic became important in the 2008 financial crisis with financial institutions like Washington Mutual and Countrywide Financial. They had these kind of crummy subprime mortgages on their books and the market started to get a little skeptical of them in 2007. Hey, wait, the home loan banks will take them. In other words, the federal home loan banks will accept these crummy subprime mortgages as collateral. Because even if the financial institutions fail, the super lien means that the federal home loan banks will still get paid before everyone else. Ryan Donovan, the head of the Trade Association for Federal Home Loan Banks, he's described the banks as shock absorbers in times of crisis. And that they're providing critical access to liquidity for uh, community banks, credit unions, He was speaking at an event last year to discuss the future of the system. They were the unsung heroes of the global financial crisis. But Aaron Klein at Brookings thinks that the federal home loan banks actually made the subprime crisis worse by lending so much money to financial institutions that were already doomed. Fast forward to this year's turbulence in the financial system, and some of the same red flags have reappeared. Silicon Valley Bank, which failed in March, had $15 billion in outstanding loans from the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco at the end of 2022. The other major banks that have collapsed this year also borrowed billions of dollars from the Federal Home Loan Bank. Aaron believes the federal home loan banks do a lot of good but need reform. And he's not alone in scrutinizing the system. The government agency that regulates these banks recently wrapped up a months-long listening tour as part of a comprehensive review of the entire system. Darian Woods. Waylon Wong. NPR News. Support for Planet Money comes from Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, King Charles III is crowned the monarch of the United Kingdom. Join us for pomp and more pomp. Also, we'll find out about the human and economic fallout of soaring office vacancies. Listen to 90.9 WBUR as you wake up tomorrow. Well, the sunshine out there right now is sure worth waiting for. A beautiful evening. A few fair weather clouds overnight tonight, back down to the mid-40s. And then for tomorrow, should be sunny again. Light breezes, temperatures just about 70 degrees. Same for Sunday. Sunny, light winds, highs about 70.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, empower a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Endless Energy, committed to helping homeowners reduce their carbon footprint and improve energy efficiency with heat pumps. Go EndlessEnergy.com or 775-ENDLESS. I'm Gabriela Emanuel, a reporter here at WBUR. Mother's Day is just around the corner, so I decided to talk to some local experts. How do you know a mama? What does a mama do? When things fall down... When you play and they help you rebuild it. What do you like about your mama? I like my mama because she has me and I have her. If there's someone in your life who loves you as much as you love them or helps you pick up the pieces when things fall down, send them Winston Flowers through WBUR. You'll help us share more of the voices and perspectives in our community. I love my mama so, 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 Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. So, so, much. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Aidan Hammond is a 16-year-old who communicates with his family in unconventional ways. He's autistic and doesn't speak, so he uses gestures and body language. He also uses a tablet that vocalizes words for him. Aidan's mom, Tiffany Hammond, has autism too. So does Aidan's younger brother, Josiah. Tiffany Hammond wants everyone to understand how they can embrace and accept people with autism. So she wrote a book about Aiden called A Day With No Words. It's a children's book illustrated by Kate Cosgrove, and it follows Aiden through a regular day, pushing buttons to tell his mom he wants to go to the park or that he wants fries and root beer for lunch. I try to tap into a lot of who I am as well in conjunction with who my children are and what I see in other children and how they respond to and interact with my own. I noticed that one of the promotional blurbs for your book was written by a pediatrician. And what the pediatrician wrote was that your book captures the beauty of an autistic mind. How would you describe the beauty of an autistic mind? Oh, man. I want to say it's indescribable because, you know, I got one. (laughs) And I don't know how to describe it. (laughs) Like, literally, like, there's so much that just kind of, like, goes on. And I think one of the biggest things for me is that, especially I mask, my youngest masks, my oldest does not. He is so free in his movements. He is so free in his thoughts. He is so free in everything. And that is just so beautiful to me. When you say masking, you're talking about sort of concealing how you might want to express yourself? Yes, you're well. You're concealing a, a lot. You're concealing the things you want to say, the movements you actually want to do. You're fighting against yourself. It's like a a war in your head. It's telling you, oh my gosh, I need to do this with my fingers. I need to twist them into a way that's really comfortable for me because I'm really stressed right now, or this is what's going to calm me down. But you're trying to tell yourself, don't do that. Don't be that way. Don't look over here. They want you to look in their eyes. People like eye contact. Try and find their eyes. You know, and you're trying to, like, tell yourself all these things that people won't hold against you. And that's what masking is. And 
it's not the best thing in the world, but it does keep a lot of us safe in a lot of situations. Yeah. Your book, which is beautifully illustrated, has pictures of your son using a tablet to communicate. How does that technology work? When my son was first diagnosed, he was in speech therapy. And back then, it was mostly like speech-dedicated devices, these six to $8,000 tablets that had these apps on there that you push buttons that had pictures and they speak for you. So when the iPad was came out and a company called Assistive Wear created an app called Proloquo to Go, his speech therapist at the time introduced us to that. He was like four years old. Ah, this was an in- inexpensive alternative? Yes. And that yeah. is what's kind of growing in this in our community, and that's way cheaper and less of a headache. You've just given a specific example of how your family communicates or how your one of your sons or both of your sons communicate. Your book shows a family using nonverbal communication. I bet some listeners aren't even sure what that means. How do you explain to people what is nonverbal communication? What, what does it look like? So that's so interesting because back when my son was younger, and because he didn't speak, everyone would say, oh, he's nonverbal. He's nonverbal. And then that's all you would hear all the time. I mean, professionals, nonverbal, non this. And I'm like, but he's kind of communicating with us through his eyes, through pointing, <laughs> through grabbing something and bringing it to me, through grabbing my hand and bringing me somewhere. When he laughs, when I make a joke, when he cries, when I'm sad, you know, all these different things he was doing, he was, all these expressions he had, all these body movements he had. I was like, that's communication. He's communicating with me. He's just communicating in a different type of way. So as he got older, the language started to change around how um, non-speakers describe themselves and how people describe them. So nowadays, a lot of non-speaking people refer to themselves as non-speaking because mm. every human on this planet communicates non-verbally. That is so interesting. Why did you decide to write this book? My son goes out into the world, and if you were to just look at him, and you wouldn't really think anything, you wouldn't think autism, you wouldn't think he couldn't speak, you wouldn't think any of those things. But then as soon as he he makes noises, he grunts, and um, or he bounces a little bit, or he uses his iPad to, to tap that he wants fries, or he wants to go to the park, that's when you get the stares. People stare at you, people make comments, people... Um, are impatient um, when you're waiting in line and you're you're wanting to encourage him to use his his device more so that he can let someone know what he needs. You start to see all of this around you and you feel alone a lot. And our family feels alone a lot. I think it's, it's estimated that roughly like 30% of those with autism either do not speak or they're minimally speak. And you feel like that's a sizable chunk, but we are alone when we go out. Was that public reception you were getting, that sometimes callous reception? I mean, in the book, you give an example of a, of a, I think it was another mother saying, that boy is handicapped, which of course is a very primitive, unfair way to describe your son. It, it was part of that public reception why you decided you want to write a book? It was meant to educate? Yes, it was meant to educate, but also I wanted to highlight the bond that I have with my son. And it was supposed to kind of serve as like this 
love letter to him. And I wanted to show that he was he was like all the other kids. He loved being outside and he loved swings and he loved spinning in grass barefoot. And he he just loved life. This is kid. He loved to hold hug trees and loves fries. And he smiles and he laughs and he dances and he spins. And I wanted to to, to show that as well. Because a lot of the times when I would read other books about disabilities or in autism in general, or it was all about you people telling you what autism was like this is autism this is aiden aiden has autism this means this this means that you know and i wanted to show the breadth of his humanity that's tiffany hammond she is the author of the children's book a day with no words tiffany thank you so much thank you so much You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs and evergreens developed for gardens and landscapes nationwide. More at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of z Pure Z's Gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. From Angie, Angie's List is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us this evening. Lovely sunshine out there right now. Some fair weather clouds around for a while longer. Sunset is at 748. Overnight tonight, partly cloudy and dry, falling to the mid-40s, and then pretty beautiful over the weekend. Sunshine tomorrow and Sunday. Temperatures from the upper 60s to about 70 degrees. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive function coaching, yoga, and counseling are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Summer semester starts June 5th. Semesteroff.com. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Rochelle Walensky, is stepping down. The former Boston-based physician guided the CDC through much of the coronavirus pandemic. Our story is coming up on this Friday, May 5th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered.
I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, across the country, lawmakers are trying to take power away from the state and local uh, from the state and local leaders in favor of state control. In St. Louis, they claim it's to help with public safety. This isn't about public safety. It's about power and control of our democratically led cities by outstate Republicans. Also, U.S. employers added 253,000 jobs in April. The unemployment rate dipped to 3.4 percent, matching the lowest level in more than a half century. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The World Health Organization says it's ending the global emergency phase of the COVID-19 pandemic. NPR's Nareet Eisenman has more. It's been more than three years and three months since WHO Director General Tedros Adnan Ghebreyesus declared that the COVID-19 outbreak was a, quote, public health emergency of international concern. It was a largely symbolic move, but also a powerful way of mobilizing the world's resources, as the virus went on to cause nearly 7 million reported deaths worldwide, with the actual toll, says Tedros, probably closer to 20 million. Now, with mortality much lower and immunity higher, Tedros says it's time to begin a new phase of managing COVID as a chronic problem. But Tedros also has this warning. This virus is here to stay. It's still killing. And it's still changing. The worst thing any country could do, he says, is to let down its guard. Nareet Eisenman, NPR News. Dr. Rochelle Walensky is stepping down as head of the CDC. She helped lead the Biden administration's response during the pandemic. President Biden praised the 54-year-old's job, saying she saved lives, but her tenure was chaotic, with high-profile departures plus controversy over masks, vaccines, and COVID guidelines for students returning to school during the pandemic. President Biden has selected a new leader for the influential White House Domestic Policy Council. NPR's Franco Ordonez has more. Nia Tandon will replace Susan Rice as the domestic policy advisor. Tandon will also have the title of assistant to the president. Tandon is a veteran Democratic operative who led the Center for American Progress. She has spent most of the administration as Biden's staff secretary, a position that acts as a gatekeeper for the president, deciding what papers reach his desk. She was initially nominated to lead Biden's Office of Management and Budget, but failed to get through the confirmation process. The Domestic Policy Council position does not require Senate confirmation. Susan Rice will step down in the coming weeks. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. On Wall Street, stocks surged, ending the day sharply higher. As NPR's David Gura reports, there was a reversal in bank shares after a wild week of trading. All three indexes closed higher. The Nasdaq ended the day up two and a quarter percent. Bank shares rallied at the end of what was a brutal week that started with the collapse of First Republic Bank. A handful of regional lenders that sold off sharply on the heels of that regained some of the ground they lost, including Western Alliance, which closed up almost 50 percent, and PacWest, which was up more than 80 percent. The strength of the labor market surprised Wall Street again. In April, the U.S. economy added 253,000 jobs, and the unemployment rate ticked down to 3.4 percent. That's the lowest it's been since 1969. David Gura, NPR News, New York. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. School leaders in Framingham say they're making contingency plans in case the district's bus drivers go on strike. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the strike could start Monday unless the union reaches an agreement with school bus company known as NRT, North Reading Transportation. 
Framingham Superintendent Bob Tremblay says if there is a strike, NRT will provide non-union drivers to operate as many buses as possible. Officials will also use the school system's fleet of passenger vehicles to try to pick up about 3,000 students who say they have no other way to get to school. Tremblay adds for now he's hopeful there will be a resolution before next week. But I don't like the fact that our students are used as a lever here, and uh, I'm going to do all I can to uh, make sure we provide our students with an education that they deserve. Westboro and Marlboro schools are also facing potential driver strikes due to stalled negotiations with NRT. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Federal prosecutors say they do not think the man who's accused of planting fake bombs on Harvard University's campus last month acted alone. William Giordani is accused of threatening to detonate the devices if he wasn't paid in Bitcoin. The New Hampshire resident is facing extortion and conspiracy charges. His lawyer says Giordani was duped into taking part in the scheme after he responded to an online ad. Today in Boston Federal Court, Giordani was released on bail. The newly revamped MBTA Board of Directors met for the first time today. Governor Maura Healey last month replaced two directors and the board's chair, who were all appointed by former Governor Charlie Baker. MBTA General Manager Phil Eng today welcomed the new members. I'm very excited about the opportunity to work together as we look to rebuild the T and, and restore it to the level um, that our customers deserve and expect. Tom Glynn is the new chair of the board. He served as the T's general manager in the Dukakis administration. Advocates for displaced Haitians in the region are meeting with the state to secure more support for the migrants who are fleeing the human rights crisis in their country. Jeff Thielman heads the International Institute of New England. He tells WBR's Radio Boston his group is providing emergency services to many of those arriving from Haiti. We need a more coordinated effort to respond to people that are arriving. We need a coordinated system. The shelter system is very complicated. It's overwhelmed right now. We also need uh, to pull all the groups together under the direction of leadership at the state level. Hundreds of families from Haiti without shelter have been forced to stay overnight at local hospital lobbies. In the forecast, a partly cloudy night overnight tonight. Lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow should be sunny once again. A lot milder temperatures could make it close to 70 degrees. Then for Sunday, the same thing. Sunny, breezy, and mild, up around 70. 56 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. We got surprisingly good news today about the U.S. job market. Despite rising interest rates and turmoil in the banking system, U.S. employers kept on hiring last month. The economy added more than a quarter million jobs in April, and the unemployment rate matched its lowest level in 54 years. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi, Sasha. Scott, with all the challenges the economy is facing right now, a lot of forecasters had expected to see see slower job growth in April. What happened? Yeah, all those headwinds are still out there, but employers just sailed right through them. Uh, We saw lots of hiring last month in healthcare and hospitality. Even construction and manufacturing, which are particularly sensitive to rising interest rates, managed to add jobs in April. Uh, as you mentioned, the unemployment rate fell to just 3.4 percent, tied the tied with the lowest level since 1969. And the unemployment rate for African Americans fell to 4.7 percent. That's a record low since the government started tracking it back in 1972. Uh, President Biden celebrated all these good numbers at the White House today. The really good news is working-age Americans 
are participating in the labor force at the highest rate in 15 years, not just since the pandemic, in 15 years. Biden's talking there about people in their so-called prime working years between 25 and 54. Uh, They've been coming off the sidelines and joining the job market in large numbers. In fact, people in that age group are now more likely to be working or looking work than at any time since 2008. Unfortunately, though, people over 54 and under 25 are not showing that same level of interest, and that's a big reason that the overall job market remains very tight. And when job markets are tight, that often means wages go up because companies are competing for workers. Is that the case here? Very much so. Average hourly wages in April were up 4.4% from a year ago. That's a bigger annual increase than the month before. For a while there, it looked as if wage gains might be cooling off, but not anymore. Uh, And of course, workers like getting those bigger paychecks. But Sarah House, who's with uh, a senior economist at Wells Fargo, says it's not helping the Federal Reserve in its effort to bring down inflation. It's great for workers that they're still getting some nice pay gains, but if it's just all going to higher prices, workers don't come out ahead in this situation. Of course, the Fed raised interest rates again this week in its effort to bring prices under control. Uh, Inflation has eased from its peak last summer, but it's still running well above the Fed's target of 2%. And in order to get back to something like stable prices, we're probably going to have to see somewhat slower wage growth. So April's numbers for jobs were better than expected. Any forecasts yet on what to expect in months ahead? Yeah, it's hard to know with precision. Obviously, these these monthly numbers can bounce around a lot. In fact, the Labor Department made some pretty big downward adjustments today to the February and March jobs numbers based on more complete information. If you step back from the noisy month-to-month variation and just focus on the overall trend, you do see job growth gradually slowing down. And how says that's about what you'd expect. Hiring can't defy gravity forever, so we're looking for a continued slowdown in in job growth. Hopefully it will continue to decelerate at a pretty measured pace rather than a big, swift collapse. A gentle, measured slowdown is the soft landing the Federal Reserve hopes to achieve, but there are a couple big wild cards. One is the uncertainty in the banking system. Uh, Other banks are, are expected to cut back on loans after those three bank failures, and that could make it hard for business to grow. And then there's the uncertainty over the debt ceiling. If that ends badly, we could be looking at a big, swift collapse. That's NPR's Scott Horsley. Thank you. You're welcome. In just a few minutes, we'll hear about all the seaweed washing up on beaches in Florida and the Caribbean, and a little bit about how bad it smells. But first, a national trend. State lawmakers are debating bills that would take control away from city and local leaders in favor of state control. Analysts say it's happening across the country, but Republican legislatures and governors in particular are increasingly using the practice to exert control in culture war debates like policing, education, and LGBTQ rights. NPR political correspondent Kelsey Snell has this report. This week, a fight in the legislature in Missouri boiled over as the state Senate considered a bill to transfer control of the St. Louis Police Department to a state-appointed board. None of the legislators who are pushing for this uh, live in the city proper. That's St. Louis Mayor Tashara Jones. Voters decided a decade ago to end a Civil War-era law that granted the state control over the city's police department. Republican State Senator Tony Lukemeyer argued on the Senate floor this week that the state should have that control back because crime is rampant in the city. Recently, we've seen major St. Louis area businesses leave or threaten to leave the region because of crime. But Jones says this legislation was about politics. This isn't about 
public safety. It's about power and control. It's about power and control of our democratically led cities by outstate Republicans. This bill didn't succeed, but it's just one example of many bills known as preemption laws, and they are getting more and more popular. Last month, Mississippi's Republican Governor Tate Reeves signed a law giving state-appointed leaders control of the police department in Jackson, the state's largest city. In Florida, lawmakers are taking aim at school districts, rent control, energy laws, and many other local laws. And according to Mark Treskin of the Urban Institute, that's intentional. States have been increasingly active actors in looking for local laws that might not fit into the ideological underpinnings of who's at the state level. Clarence Anthony, the CEO and executive director of the National League of Cities, says there are more than 600 of these preemption bills circulating in state legislatures right now. What we're seeing lately is, I think, an increase of uh, home rule grab type legislation, and we're seeing more preemptive laws being uh, implemented throughout America. Cities and local governments have traditionally been in control of issues like schools, public safety, and housing. Their jobs have been to address the unique needs of the people in their area. Then COVID happened. Mike Ricci advised Larry Hogan, the former Republican governor of Maryland. Ricci says during the initial outbreak, governors were suddenly using their power to manage the health emergency. You know, a light bulb goes off. And if we can do this with local health powers, can we do it in other areas, whether it's law enforcement or housing or energy policy? And so it just takes on a life of its own. But these powers aren't new. Governors and state legislators from both parties often work together to pass uniform laws for the entire state. Advocates for the approach say it's a way to avoid a patchwork of rules by setting statewide standards, like for rideshare companies or the minimum wage. But as culture wars sprung up across the country, Ricci says governors and state legislatures tapped into those same powers for political reasons. He says it would have once been unthinkable for a Republican governor who believes in small government to meddle in local issues. But now we see it all the time. And I think that will continue. I truly believe that preemption and these uh, these tools will be the new normal. Clarence Anthony of the League of Cities says many of these bills will fail, like in Missouri. Many more will change. But the uptick in state governments trying to restrict the rights and actions of cities is significant. One size does not fit all. And our local leaders, really, they were elected to lead their community uh, and to make those decisions. For Mayor Jones in St. Louis, she'll still have control of the police department for now. But she says there are serious consequences to undermining local leaders. It makes voters angry, especially when they elect their leaders on the local level and then they see that their leaders constantly have to fight uh, for the rights of our cities. It is particularly stark when those voters have nobody to represent them statewide. Advocates worry that voters who lose faith in the power of their local leaders may stop participating in elections altogether. Kelsey Snell, NPR News, Washington. Record levels of a smelly brown algae called sargassum are starting to wash up on shores in Florida, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Too much sargassum can cause headaches for local residents and wreck tourism economies. So it makes sense to remove it. But that creates another challenge. What can you do with a massive pile of seaweed? NPR's Emily Olson has this story. It's pretty common to smell sargassum before you even see it. Residents have 
for years complained about the smell because when it washes ashore, it, it smells like sulfuric acid or something. It smells like rotten eggs, says Allison Crane. She's a spokesperson for the city of Key West in Florida. The longest stretch of public beach in Key West is only about a half mile long, so it's not hard to rake stinky piles of sargassum off the sand every morning. But it costs the city about a million dollars each year, she says. And that's a cost that could rise. Our Tourist Development Council is freaking out. Research shows that excessive sargassum levels may cause nausea and respiratory issues. And now scientists think it could contain some heavy metals like arsenic. That makes leaving it all on the beach dangerous to local ecosystems. But taking it off the beach leaves you with giant piles of stinking seaweed. So researchers and private companies have tried turning it into fertilizer, biofuel, or plastic, but it's not so easy. Because it's poisonous, you have to process it to make it usable mm. for most things, and that can be too expensive for any large-scale use. I mean, there is, there's millions and millions of tons of it. That's Patty Estridge, CEO of Generation Seaweed. It's a UK startup that thinks it may have finally found a commercially viable solution. We are building an automated robot called the Algorae, which is designed to intercept and sink sargasm before it can reach the coast. This slow-moving robot could drag sargassum down to depths of about 200 meters. That pops the air pods that keep sargassum afloat, sending the seaweed to a watery grave. And more importantly, it traps all the carbon that it holds, which could be a scalable way to fight climate change. It's a bit like an ocean Roomba to try and clear up the seaweed blob. The algorithm is still in testing phases, but Estridge hopes it might be ready to work by next summer. Emily Olson, NPR News. Four years ago, a fire devastated Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. The building's historic 19th century spire was among the ruins. Later this hour, we'll hear from the craftsmen working on rebuilding that spire and how they're restoring it to its former glory. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on Marketplace this evening on WBUR, the U.S. has more banks than any other nation, but the total number is still a fraction of what it used to be. We'll take a look at what's happening in the industry tonight on Marketplace, which starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mission Realty Advisors team at Compass. Advising buyers and sellers in today's changing real estate market. More at mraboston.com WBUR. And the Worcester Art Museum with Frontiers of Impressionism, featuring works by over 30 artists, including Monet, Renoir, Cassatt, and more. Now open. WorcesterArt.org. A way up day on Wall Street today. The Dow rose 1.65%, S&P gained 1.85%, and the Nasdaq gained 2.25%. Boston-based DraftKings stock surged today. Share prices rose 15% in trading. The hike came after the company reported better-than-expected revenue of $770 million. That's 84% higher than a year ago. DraftKings got a boost from the start of mobile betting in Massachusetts and increased online betting in other states where it's operating. It's 620. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders, movers, and changemakers to close opportunity gaps, advance equity, and power a better Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. 
Still pretty beautiful out there. A partly cloudy night overnight tonight. Lows in the mid-40s. Tomorrow, sunny once again. A lot milder. Close to 70. Same thing for Sunday. Sunshine, right about 70. Tiziana Deering. My mom gave me the best gifts I could ask for. Talia, Tony, Chris, Bill, Ted, Carla, Stacy, Lisa, my siblings. What did your mom give you? Your siblings, your joy, your curiosity? This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support storytelling that brings you joy and feeds your curiosity. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Juana Summers. Dr. Rochelle Walensky, the head of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, is stepping down at the end of June. In a statement, President Biden said that Walensky, quote, leaves CDC a stronger institution, better positioned to confront health threats and protect Americans. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin is here to tell us more about the announcement and Walensky's time at the CDC. Hey. Hi, Juana. So, Selena, was this a surprise? I did hear from staffers at CDC and others in the public health world today who were surprised. Walensky was just yesterday testifying in front of Congress, and there was no inkling that this was going to drop. But from a political perspective, there's a sense that it was kind of maybe time for her to step aside. And one clue was that the news actually broke when the White House commented on her departure. Mm. CDC's email announcing she would step down came an hour later. Okay, so remind us, if you can, who she is and what her background was before she was the head of the CDC. She is a physician with a background in HIV. When President Biden appointed her, she was running the Infectious Disease Division at Massachusetts General Hospital, and she was a professor of medicine at Harvard. I spoke to several people who knew her well when the appointment was announced who were just over the moon. I mean, she was known as a charismatic, an incredibly smart leader, um, but this was a tough assignment. Today, I spoke with Drew Altman. He's president and CEO of KFF, and he says it's important to remember this context. She led the CDC at perhaps the most challenging time in its history in the middle of an absolute crisis after a period of time during the Trump administration when it had been politicized. Remember, it was a year into the pandemic. CDC had been found to have changed public health guidance based on political interference. There were accusations about how data was being handled. It was an incredibly challenging moment for CDC. Right. And so thinking back in early 2021, she came to Atlanta to run this huge public health agency. How would you describe her time there? Well, for Americans, she became a familiar face in regular White House pandemic briefings alongside Dr. Anthony Fauci at NIH. But even in the first year, she faced criticism for communication missteps. So, for example, she told people that once you got vaccinated, you couldn't spread COVID-19. And in the summer of 2021, more data made clear that that was not true. And that made her the target of 
have a lot of vitriol, especially from Republican lawmakers and media figures. She was also criticized for mask guidance and confusing booster guidance. And she survived calls for her to go in all of those cases. But I've heard that the Biden administration was in favor of her leaving and just couldn't find a good time without stressing the pandemic response. Mm. Um, So it seems like the end of the public health emergency that's scheduled for next week offers a natural transition. And Altman and others give her credit for trying to depoliticize CDC, put it on a better track. She started a reorganization that's ongoing. And Altman says she led the agency with science and dignity. Um, In Walensky's letter to CDC staff today, she describes her departure as one of mixed emotions and wrote, quote, I have never been prouder of anything I have done in my professional career. Okay, last thing, any sense of who will replace her? Not yet. She will remain on the job through the end of June, so there is time. This is a presidential appointment at this point. There is no Senate confirmation process, so President Biden will just have to make his pick. Okay, we will watch and wait. Selena Semenstefan, thank you. Thank you. A new comedy series starring Saturday Night Live alum Pete Davidson dropped yesterday. The show, which is streaming on Peacock, is based on Davidson's life. NPR TV critic Eric Dagan says Bupkiss is a sometimes boneheaded show that nevertheless reveals an awful lot about its subject. Another title for Pete Davidson's new comedy could have been Adventures in Knuckleheadedness. Consider this moment when Davidson loses a key movie role for acting like, well, a knucklehead. Chris O'Donnell plays his manager. They are pulling the offer on the Fast and the Furious. What? Why? Because you were photographed doing whippets at the White House Correspondence Dinner. You're 29. Who does whippets outside of high school? I'll be good, okay? I'll get the movie. I'm glad to hear that you are open to making the right decision, but I'm a bit concerned because you're doing nitrous right now. Or here, where backstage at a charity event, Davidson tries to convince Jon Stewart to run for president. We gotta talk, man. I think I think it's time. I think you gotta throw your hat in the ring. It's time to run for president. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's gonna happen. Come on, Stu. Man, you gotta run. I mean, if you don't, John, I'm gonna have to. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't think you should do that. How old do you have to be? See, that's right there. You're afraid I won't win or something? Yeah, that's not what I'm afraid of. Awkward moments like this are the backbone for a lot of the comedy in Bubkiss, which features Davidson stumbling through situations like a grown-up comedy star with the attention span and drug habits of an at-risk teenager. But a funny thing happens on the way to jokes about hiring a sex worker for his dying grandfather. We get a close-up look at Davidson's tortured life as a celebrity. In one sequence, a gossip site falsely reports his death, sending his mother, played by Edie Falco, into a panic attack. And the public's misunderstanding of his life leads to anger and self-destructive behavior, as Davidson explains to his therapist, played by Charlie Day. People online are just like, oh, pizza cokehead, because I move my jaw when I get nervous. And I wasn't even on coke, you know? That's why I get so upset. If I was on coke, I'd be like, wow, good job, you, you good eye, you know? But I wasn't on coke, you know what I'm saying? Right, but Peter, are you on coke? Like, if you came up to me and be like, yo, did you, do you do coke? I'd be like, no. But like, if someone was like, you want to do a bump? I'd be like, yeah. This fictionalized Pete Davidson lives in the basement of his mother's house in Staten Island, just like the real comic did. And he also struggles with thoughts of suicide while the death of his father, a first responder during 9-11, still looms over the family. But the show's real casting coup is getting Joe Pesci to play Davidson's grandfather, a no-nonsense Italian guy dying of cancer who delivers some tough love when Davidson complains about his public image. I got it change it up you know i gotta change the way people see me people think i'm like a joke for some reason they see you as a joke because you are a joke and you act like a joke you run around like a kid and you're not a kid anymore you're a man 
Yeah, but I'm doing good career-wise. I mean, you know, Hypebeast called me a voice of a generation. I, I don't think that was a compliment. There's a boatload of other great cameos here, from Brad Garrett and Bobby Cannavale playing Davidson's relatives to turns by Ray Romano and J.J. Abrams and Steve Buscemi and even more. Sometimes they're just a shot of comic relief, like when Sebastian Stan beats up Davidson in a coffee shop. But in other moments, they show off the twisted male role models and bizarre personal connections of a man-child celebrity comic coming to terms with his own strange life. Like a Gen Z version of Curb Your Enthusiasm set in Staten Island, Buckus gathers all the contradictions of Davidson's world into one comic stew, eager to show us even he's not exactly sure how he got here. I'm Eric Deggins. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Heads up if you're traveling around town this weekend. The Sumner Tunnel will be closed between East Boston and downtown starting tonight at 11 until 5 on Monday. Also tonight, there'll be lane closures on 93 North from Milton into Dorchester. They start at 10 and will end by 5 tomorrow. And on the red line tomorrow and Sunday, shuttle buses will replace service between Park Street and JFK UMass stations for track work. This is WBUR. It's 630. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose. Latin American fare with a modern twist. Drop off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. LaCuchara.com. It takes courage to make art that really reaches people, says Billy Corgan. When you put fear and art together, it tends not to result in a great work. It doesn't touch people at a deeper level because it's based in, in something that I don't think most people resonate to. A Smashing Pumpkins frontman about the band's new rock opera and a conversation with a member of Pussy Riot. Saturday, weekend edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 8 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.